So, Miles, in an attempt to better contextualize Wolverine in her fury, I, I actually went back and I read its writer's arc on the main Wolverine series. Huh. How was it, Jay? It was, uh, it was definitely some comics. Wolverine fought at eco-terrorists who had kidnapped some lumber magnate's daughter. That doesn't sound too bad. Miles, the terrorists fought with logging equipment. Okay, that's a little silly. Their leader's name was Johnny Bloodseed. Whoa. Did he wander the land, planting blood trees? I wish. No, no, he started a cult and almost blew up Wolverine with an exploding tree spike. Ouch. How'd Wolverine get out of that one? Got a friend to hold him down in freezing water, which somehow kept the spike from exploding until they could get it out. How'd the spike get in in the first place? Well, Bloodseed and Wolverine got into a fight, and Bloodseed somehow found time during the melee to- Stab him with it? Hammer it into him with an enormous stone sledgehammer. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 227 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a combination of a couple of things that are extreme in ways that only Adam X will soon equal. We're covering some Wolverine one-shots from the early 90s. The thing is, though, I don't think of these as particularly extreme Wolverine stories. They're, they're very artsy. Well, they're extremely weird in a lot of ways. But yeah, you're right. The main thing that's notable for this pair of one-shots is their artists, I think. On one of them, we have Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, the amazing Bill Sienkiewicz that did that seminal New Mutants run and lots of other stuff. On the other, we have Kent Williams, who did the Wolverine segments of Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, which we loved. And I, I guess I did think of something else that, that, that is extreme in one of these. One of these two books is extremely bad. Which is weird, considering those artists. But, but this, is, this is it. We have found the story even Sienkiewicz couldn't save. So here's the thing with Sienkiewicz, and I'm sure we'll get to this more as we're talking about the issue, but Bill Sienkiewicz is an artist who's really out there. Like, his work tends mm -hmm. to be very surreal and often symbolic and, you know, just sort of fiddly artsy. And I feel like you have to have a writer who's got some pretty good storytelling chops to not rein that in exactly, but to give it the context that a reader needs to follow what the hell's going on. Well, you've got to have a writer who is going to work with Sienkiewicz and who's going to write taking that art style into account, or who's going to write really, really collaboratively. collaboratively. And that's not happening here. And... The thing with Sienkiewicz, he is amazing at atmosphere, he is amazing at characters, he's amazing at world building, he is not amazing at clear panel-to-panel -panel storytelling. That's not what he does, that's not his thing. And when you have a writer who is, is writing for Marvel, so basically writing for Marvel House style in terms of what they expect the art to convey, and then Sienkiewicz goes and Sienkiewicz's it, the result is not a wildly coherent comic. You are completely right. But before we get into this uh, comic, let's talk about what these comics are. So we mentioned these are one-shots. What they specifically are are prestige one-shots. You know how most comics have annuals? Well, Excalibur and Wolverine in this era and for a while before didn't. Instead, they would have these little perfect-bound, fancy, higher-priced one-shots. 
Some of those were very good. Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, others less so. Now, I thought that these were actually the two final Wolverine Prestige one-shots, but no, they just keep going. 1994 has one called Evolution. That's right, Evolution. But that one's got Boom Boom in it, so I'm actually really excited to get to that at some point. And then in the 1995, we have Wolverine Night of Terra, which is the sequel to Wolverine Reign of Terra, that Peter David X-Forcey alternate medieval universe story we covered a while back. In that episode, we did talk a little bit about Night of Terra, but it's much less exciting. That was a winter special, wasn't it? I, I think so. I don't know. It's all starting to blur together. I just feel like I've been in front of this microphone for years, just recording in a random order with no time to eat or sleep or consider my life outside of X-Men. I ask, um, not because I'm concerned about your life outside of X-Men, which I'm really not, <clears throat> but because we're actually coming up on our next winter special. It's going to be not next episode, but the one afterwards. And and while we are not going to be covering Night of Terra, we are very, very excited about the story we're going to be covering for that. And, and I'm already kind of chomping at the bit to get there. So, so that's very much on my mind right now. And, and also today's alternative is, is, is some, a, a very mixed bag of Wolverines. A mixed bag of Wolverines. That sounds dangerous. Like you want to hold that at arm's length. Maybe just tie it to a stick like a bindle. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, anyway, so this kind of reminds me of what's going on with Logan here in 2018. I mean, there were just one shots and Marvel Comics presents and whatever all over the place, all through the 80s and the 90s. And here we have Logan coming back, currently in the Return of Wolverine miniseries, and he's just all over the goddamn place. They've already announced, like, at least three miniseries based around him, and, I mean, we've said it so many times, but I just, I feel like Logan's story got such a good ending in Death of Wolverine. I don't know, maybe the new miniseries will be excellent and we'll just love them. Let Logan stay dead, y'all. We had, we had a perfectly good Wolverine. We had a better Wolverine. Laura Kinney. I'm glad she's still around, though, at least, being awesome. <sighs> anyway, speaking of things that are perhaps a little less awesome, uh, Jay, you had suggested when we were talking earlier that we start with a less exciting book so we can finish on a strong note. So let's talk about 1992's Wolverine Inner Fury. <sighs> Wolverine Inner Fury was written by DJ Chichester. I'm not sure if that's the, the correct pronunciation of his name. Frankly, if it's not, I feel okay about that. <laughs> it's drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz and colored by Sherilyn Van Valkenburg. And uh, Chichester is best known for a fairly controversial run of Daredevil. He is the guy who not only brought Elektra back, but introduced the uh, Jack Batlin persona. And I, I wrote in my notes, nobody's favorite, which sounds really mean. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those runs that's, that's just not wildly remembered or well-known. It's not really thought of as the Chichester era, era. It's what comes after Nascenti. To be fair, almost anybody who wrote after Nascenti did would probably be described as the person that came after Nascenti. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, Jack Batlin, um, that was the thing. And, uh, he also wrote Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos for a while, or Nick Fury, no, it was Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a while, um, and... Also, he wrote two issues of the Wolverine ongoing. Those are Wolverine 58 and 59, which we discussed in the cold open. Uh, they came out in, in months almost immediately preceding this, this prestige format um, one-shot. And in those, Wolverine fights an eco-terrorist named Johnny Bloodseed, who, who actually goes by the name Monkey Wrench. And he uh, teams up with Terror, who's Chichester's character from a short-running series of the same name, and distinct from the Terror, who fights the Tick and is very old. 
as much as I love the terror from the tick, specifically the live action one, although he's great in the other versions as well, I do remember the Marvel terror. I think he was in a book called Terror Incorporated, I want to say. Yes, yes, he was. But I remember I didn't know anything about him except what I knew from his trading card. And what his trading card told me, in addition to some stuff on the back that I've long since forgotten, is that he looked fucking cool. He was like a demon guy with spikes coming out of his face, and he wore a trench coat, and that was all I needed in 1990-whatever. So his thing, his thing, at least as far as I can extrapolate from from, uh, his, his appearances in Wolverine, is that he can gain the abilities of dead people based on the body parts of theirs that he incorporates into his body and also sometimes their memories and stuff. And this is, this is, they, they stretch this in some directions. And obviously there's a lot of symbolic stuff because for instance, he can hear better because he has the ear of a sonar operator, but it just appears to be the outer ear structure. So I'm not sure if that, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that that would actually lend him that ability. Do you remember that time that Revolver Ocelot was able to possess Liquid Snake because Liquid Snake's hand got cut off and he replaced it with Revolver Ocelot's cut off hand for some goddamn reason? I had tried really hard to forget that, but thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, what's the deal with Inner Fury? I guess we should talk about what happens here, huh? Okay, so um, this does not involve eco-terrorists named uh, things like Johnny Bloodseed and the Pickaxis. The pickaxes. Oh, that's great. Pickaxes. There are also two characters named Paul and Bunyan. Um, it's not a good arc, Miles. But anyway, um, what what God? What happens in Inner Fury? Less than you'd expect. Okay, so there's this guy, this scientist. He's called the Whale. He's a Hydra scientist, and he's really small, and he's got this sort of like big uh, bubble helmet over his shark face head, and he just sort of is like hung from the ceiling all the time when he's working in a lab. He looks like a little shark dude in a spacesuit full of green liquid. I should add that he thinks of himself as the shark, but also that one of one of the things that Sinkevich brings to this book is. That I have absolutely no idea what character representations are literal and which are symbolic. I know what you mean, yeah, because the fact that he looks like a shark doesn't really come up. Like he, it, like you said, he talks about how he thinks of himself as a shark, mm-hmm. not a whale a lot of the time, but nobody ever mentions, well, you look like one too. Well, and sometimes he's got a super pointy no- nose and sometimes he actually has a shark face and his face is exaggerated in, in different interesting and peculiar ways. And the way he's drawn... And I, I didn't think of this while I was I was reading it or while I was taking notes on it, but the way he's drawn makes Sinkevich feel very much like a proto-Nate Powell in some kind of interesting and neat ways. Huh, I'm actually not too familiar with Nate Powell, but maybe I should be. Yeah, no, he's terrific, but but specifically when he's going in slightly weird directions. Anyway, um, the, the whale and or the shark works for Hydra. He is very small, and he used to be enormous, and he has in some way and to some extent remade his body using the object of his research, which are nanomachines, which I believe are referred to as micro-mini-bots in this. Oh, micro-mini-bots. Hey, you remember the commercial for those? There was the guy that he talked real fast and stuff? No, that's that's not micro-mini-bots. Micro-mini-bots exist only in this comic. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Alas, but the whale does manage to engineer the crashing of the convoy that he's in. Clearly, he's at odds with Hydra in some fashion, and he gets the hell out of there. Well, specifically, he resents some combination of not getting credit for his work and the ways in which Hydra is twisting his discoveries to use them for evil. He's at odds with his research partner, but we don't learn very much about about that character yet. Now, 
while the whale and or shark or the whale shark or the shark whale or the, that guy is is engineering his escape, Wolverine, meanwhile, gets called to a meeting on the helicarrier with Nick Fury. And uh, specifically, Nick Fury has they, they picked up a Hydra agent. And the Hydra agent had a piece of paper on him saying, you're supposed to kill Wolverine and then meet us at X location. And Fury tips Wolverine off and says and Wolverine says, well, I'll go to the rendezvous instead of him. Um, despite the fact that they're both entirely certain that it's a trap, uh, Wolverine makes only very bad life choices. It's true, and those life choices earn him a fight with the strangest-looking Hydra agents I've ever seen. I almost wonder if Bill Sienkiewicz knew these were supposed to be Hydra agents, because he draws them like some kind of, I don't know, fucking Tusken Raiders from Star Wars or something. No, dude, you know what they look like? They look like the Sand Demons from Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Oh, they totally do. Actually, they also kind of remind me, um, do you remember the first Legion story in New Mutants? I think it was number 28 that had the cover with those demonic soldiers on the front looming over everybody. They kind of remind yeah. me of those, too. They they very much read as partly unwrapped mummies to me. Yeah, well, anyway, we don't find out why they look that way, but they just look fucking cool, and at least this comic's got that going for it. That's true. It is a very cool-looking comic. Um it just it it it's got and and I don't think of this trope as one I associate with Sinkevich, but it's it's got the 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 cooler than coherent thing going. It totally does. Anyway, he's he's fighting these dudes, and their issue uh, they need to hit his bones with their swords because their swords are rigged to transmit the the micro mini machine nanobot things which are robots but they're also kind of an infection and their actual function and relationship to wolverine is very unclear and varies over the course of the book and the hydra agents are successful and they might do even worse things to logan except a small man who goes by big or sometimes mr big then shows up with a giant goddamn gun and blows them all away and wolverine is saved all right. Um, we're we're basically just blasting through this because honestly, again, it's not very interesting, and literally nothing from this story is ever going to come back into continuity, or has at least so far. Well, sort of, but there are these little connections, and they're not intended, but I, I still love them. So, for instance, Big, or Mr. Big, is a small dude with a big nose and really long hair that kind of goes over his eyes, and he's got these stylish baggy clothes on, and he reminds me a hell of a lot from the way that some of the characters from Chris Pachalo's Generation Next from Age of Apocalypse looked. Okay, I don't I know if that, that. Yeah, and so that's kind of cool. So, I'm going to skip the lead-up plot-wise in any suspense, and say the what the nanomachine virus does is it starts to pull the adamantium out of his bones, specifically designed to do that, and that's why the swords had to get in contact with his bones. And this does two things. First of all, it makes him look rad as hell. He gets extremely spiky um, and, and just sort of protean-looking. And it also basically puts his healing factor offline because his healing factor has to suddenly cope with the adamantium in his bloodstream, and it's so busy that it can't do anything else. Yeah, there's some mention made of how when the adamantium was just hanging out with the marrow inside his bones, which I don't think that's how it worked, but whatever, close enough, that his healing factor didn't really care about it. But now that it was being leached out, all of a sudden, there's a problem. And what this reminds me of more than anything visually is what happened to Logan in the nightmare sequences within the Weapon X storyline, where he would just have spikes coming out of him more and more as he was in his beast persona, or worried that he was in his beast persona. And with Weapon X being very much in the comic reader's consciousness at this point, I have to think that must have been an at least somewhat deliberate reference. What it also does is foreshadow 
the process of Magneto ripping the adamantium out of Wolverine's skeleton in the upcoming Fatal Attractions. Yeah, we're really not far away from that. So some interesting uh, parallel adjacency going on there. So Logan's still Logan. So he and Mr. Big stop by a bar to get some information to figure out what's going on with this shark guy that created these nanobots. And there's this wonderful scene where Logan's flirting with a lady. Very noir-like, very skeezy-like. And she goes to touch his face, being all romantic, and she slices her finger open on what I can only assume from the unclear art is some adamantium goddamn stubble sticking out of his face. No, Wolverine is just that manly. You can't touch his face. It's like like shark skin. Sandpaper. Oh, well, that ties in really nicely with the whole shark symbolism going on here, so there you go. But um, I would consider that a flirtation fail, even more so when after she runs off, Mr. Big's like, hey, maybe the three of us can make an arrangement. So basically, everybody is skeezy in this story. Yeah, now... What this actually is, is is the adamantium coming out. It's also making it look like he's got gray in his hair because it's just just tiny filaments of adamantium leaking out of his his hair follicles. Um, In case it wasn't clear earlier, Big is 100% using Wolverine. Big is, in fact, whale and or shark's evil research partner from Hydra. He set things up so that Wolverine would come and help him track down and kill whale and or shark. One thing I love about this, so we saw the whale's research partner earlier after the convoy crashed. We just see a silhouette of like a sexy, curvy lady shooting some of the people that saw what happened. And that sexy, curvy lady silhouette is identified as whale's research partner. It turns out the reason that this other very small man with like long hair and a beard and stuff had that silhouette is that he goes around in sort of this robot walker thing with protrusions and robot arms and stuff such that its silhouette is the silhouette of a curvy, sexy lady. It's shaped like like a big styrofoam coffee cup. It kind of is, but its silhouette is sexy, curvy, ladyish. I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, the t- the, the rim is the boobs. <laughs> the rim is the boobs. That's the that's the thesis statement of this entire comic. Anyway, Wolverine manages to reset his healing factor and cure the virus and or nano machine infection and or no one's quite sure what it is, by stabbing himself in the brain. It's actually kind of wonderful. Like, at this point, Mr. Big has reverted to trying to chainsaw Wolverine into tiny pieces, and Wolverine's like, shit, I need my healing factor. Well, there's only one thing to do. And yeah, he just stabs his claws into his brain, and there's this little inset of his white blood cells, which have little googly eyes like their goddamn planaria, suddenly turning around and following a sign with an arrow marked to brain. That's the thing. Like, this isn't a good comic, but it's full of so many amazing batshit bonkers things, and I have to love those things. What I would like to see happen with this comic, I would like to see it, see all of the text stripped out, and another writer given the art and told... Make a comic. Oh, man. Uh, I, I would just love to see a bunch of people do that, just like a bunch of amateurs and professionals and whatever. Like, everyone can tell their own story using this art, and I bet that no two of those stories would even remotely resemble each other. Yeah, for sure. So we did miss a couple of things. Like, Jay, I know you wanted to breeze through it because you don't like it very much, but there are a couple of very important things that we have to touch on. Thing one, okay, do you remember the part with the geese? I remember the part with the geese. There is a part where where geese get into the helicarrier afterburners and uh, shields just like, yeah, fire them up and we'll have poultry for dinner. I mean, 
geese are kind of assholes, but everybody also forgets that, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. were a bunch of, like, dirty rat fuckers for a lot of their history. Like, they're all really disreputable, and they're all jerks. And I feel like seeing, you know, noble S.H.I.E.L.D. agents in so many of the Avengers movies make us forget that. The other thing that I that 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 is great in this, and I will I will say I legitimately love this. This this cracked me up. Is a somewhat obtuse inside joke in it. This comic has a shit ton of Moby Dick references, which don't actually accomplish anything in the story, but which very specifically Wolverine mentions that he knows by way of Classics Illustrated, and. To get why this is funny, what you need to know is that Bill Sienkiewicz did the Classics Illustrated adaptation of Moby Dick, and it's gorgeous and bizarre. It is, but not as bizarre as the Moby Dick dream sequence that Logan has, like, where his eyes are bugging out like he's some kind of Tex Avery by way of mescaline trip character, and, like, the shark slash whale himself is this hulking monstrosity with all these spirals and angry red marks and the backgrounds going bizarre uh, behind everything. That's the thing, like, the more we talk about this comic, Jay, the more I, I don't like it exactly, but I really, really appreciate it. It's, the art is cool, and there are moments in the writing that are cool, but for the most part, they feel like they're from two entirely different things. Well, in that case, do you want to talk about a comic that works a whole lot better? God, I do. I was really just getting through that one so that we could get to this one, because it is so so good this is this is like this is a buried treasure i had never heard of this until now yeah and it doesn't help that the title is incredibly generic it's called wolverine colon killing like that's the whole title what is it about well killing i guess it's about wolverine killing wouldn't that be wolverine comma killing like girl interrupted god i wish (laughs) logan interrupted girl killing that would be a strange crossover it's important to have the comma between girl and killing i guess there's killing happening either way and that's probably not good Maybe we're tangenting too much. Maybe not enough. All right. Um. So this is a noir story, and it's got the narration and the tone of one. And it's oh god, it's so good. It's it's drawn. First of all, it's drawn by Kent Williams, who whose name you might recognize from another buried treasure, um, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. And it's written by a guy named John Nay Reber, who's mostly known for writing 50 freaking issues of Vertigo's Books of Magic ongoing back in the day, and uh, colored actually by the same person who colored the last story we talked about, Sherilyn Van Valkenburg. Who does a really, really beautiful job with incredibly moody painted colors. So this story tells us what it's going to be almost immediately. As Logan stalks out of a movie narrating, They don't make him like that anymore. Nothing but pretty faces on the screen these days. Cruises. Pseudos. Nobody you can believe in. Bogart, though. One look at the man, you know he's been through it. You see it in his eyes. He knows the game. We were born alone to live and die alone. Get to do us a little laughing and loving on our way out, if we're lucky. Been a while since I got lucky. And that's the kind of story it's going to be. There are stories where narration is an albatross, and there are stories where narration is a current that just that the story flows along. This is the latter. And Reber does such a stunningly, stunningly good job. You know, we, talk, we talked about it, these, these two comics are really interesting as kind of a masterclass in contrasts because there's a lot that they have in common that works in killing and doesn't in inner fury. And one of them is that, that killing is 
not exactly abstract, but it's it's very weird and it's very, very mood-driven. And the text works so well with the art in setting that, but also in propelling the story through it. It does, yeah. I mean, all we really learn from the first bit is that Logan is in a city and he doesn't really like cities and he's worried that he's lost his connection to sort of, you know, the pure, natural, quiet world that he's become something that's only compatible with like the grime and the bustle and the violence of of the urban world. And we don't know why, but it doesn't matter because the narration just drives it all along. And in fact, we even transition into a nightmare sequence transparently without even realizing it. This narration right here just makes me so freaking happy. These streets can't all be dead ends. Narrow streets packed with narrow people closing in. The crush of walls of stained cement and broken glass. The stench of fear sweat steaming from the mouths of subway tunnels. The roar ten million curses make while ten million dreams die stillborn. This is very much a Wolverine voice that I think of as cowboy poet Wolverine. Yeah, like it's it's sort of noir in terms of the the feel, but almost more specifically Western. Like, is Western noir a thing? I'm sure Western noir is a thing. Western noir is a thing, but more specifically, it's a Western character who's trapped in a noir setting. Ooh, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. One of the things I love about Wolverine is that he's he is a really, really eloquent thinker and person. And the way he talks and the way he contextualizes and narrates his surroundings tends to be extremely poetic and extremely dramatic. And this book feels, more than any other I've read, like it comes very close to not only getting that tone textually, but to matching it with with sort of its visual counterpart. Yeah, like Reber and Kent Williams are just such a stellar combination. I don't know if they've done anything else together. And Van Valkenburg, because the colors are so, so critical to that. They are, and that's actually something that we should talk about, because the last time we saw Kent Williams, he was just painting in Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Now he's mm. being colored by somebody else, and so it's a different feel. Like, in some ways, it's a little more traditionally comic booky. You know, it's not such just a watercolory, washed-out mess of wonderfulness, but it works. Like, we still have the feeling of everything is just a little too gray or a little too bright blue or green later on. Like, everything is sort of oppressively rendered in a beautiful fashion. There's a lot that's done with light and shadow that really creates the sense of claustrophobia in cities. Later on, there are some amazing pages with partial snow blind that are, are just just breathtaking in, in totally other ways. I realized, thinking back through this um. It, the faces in this reminded me of something I couldn't place, couldn't place, and couldn't place it, and realized a moment ago that um, the, what I was thinking of was Dave McKeon. Yeah, you know, there actually is a lot of Dave McKeon feel to this, and that's not entirely surprising. Like him and Kent Williams have have had some overlaps, but this book especially, I think, like it does feel almost a little collagey in places. Well, that's it's it's. I'm thinking more specifically about just the line work on the faces and some very very specific um, specific aff- affectations within that. And speaking of cities and just how the narration and the art both render them so horrifically, this nightmare that Logan is in just continues because the city just presses in claustrophobically more and more and more. And Logan, as the people press in around him, all of a sudden he's naked and they're all just crushing him down and he's falling through blood and fire and hell into this 
industrial nightmare scape of just valves and pipes and steam vents and machines where each of the little parts doesn't even really make any sense. And the narration just keeps going. And the metal of your bones begins to vibrate now, resonating with the turbine scream that drives the city. The way the city is drawn here, where like the city almost seems like the entire world, like the industry just sort of goes on forever and there's nothing beyond it, it actually reminds me a lot of the apartment world segment from Silent Hill 4, just that sense that the city is everything and you can never escape and it just wants to crush you into being part of itself. What a lot of this book feels like to me, and especially what the contrasts between spaces in it feel like to me, um, is China, China Mieville's work. I, I've never read any Mieville. I really, really want to. I know you've said such stellar things uh, about those books. You should. I, I would love to. I shall. So the gist of it is that, like we were saying before, Logan's worried that this urban hell is something he can never escape. And in fact, as he wakes up from what was clearly a dream to yet another shredded sofa that he was sleeping on and just snicked the hell out of, he starts to head off and Jubilee's there and he just says, hey, I'm heading to the airport. I'm out of here. And she's only there for like a couple panels, but I like it. It's a good reminder that this is in the Marvel universe, but more specifically, a good reminder that the Wolverine we see in team books, the Wolverine we see, you know, mentoring young characters and being a team player and yelling at Cyclops, like that's part of Wolverine's life. And the other part is this very private, complex tortured experience and that's what we see here and i think that's something that these one shots and wolverine solo series often can be really good for to remind us like the x-men only see one side of logan here's some of the rest so wolverine is off to the himalayas where it's clean and cold and there are wide expanses and he thinks he's just going to shake this stuff out of his head that's not the case he is being led there because as we see in tibet in this high tower of like a city of uneven buildings and jagged lines. Oh, it's just beautiful. Um, there are two characters named Tane and Nerissa, speaking mysteriously of bringing in the beast, and it quickly becomes clear that Tane is using some kind of wacky psychic magic to give Logan nightmares and draw him out here so that Logan can then be manipulated into having sex with Nerissa's daughter, Sarah, so that Sarah can give birth to people with healing factors in this enclave city that nobody ever goes into or out of. We often talk about how supervillain plots at their best are unnecessarily complicated. I think this may qualify, but it's also creepy, as Sarah agrees as she overhears this and is like, dude, I don't want some random stranger to come in here and impregnate me. That's like really messed up, mom. What the hell? Yeah, so Sarah ends up fleeing, and Nerissa and Tane invoke the rules of the settlement, which imply A, that nobody leaves, but that B, presumably to keep the bloodlines in the city diverse periodically people do have to basically sleep with outsiders and and that's what that's what this is part of this is part of a system that's existed for a fairly long time this system is dumb and i don't like it so jay did sarah remind you of anyone visually she reminded me very slightly of Anne merkel from why i hate saturn <laughs> that too but her outfit actually reminded me a hell of a lot of renoa from final fantasy 8 who also had to be in a relationship with kind of a jerk. I mean, I can sort of see it. I guess they both wear blue vests. And with the black underneath and the dark hair and the pale skin. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I just expected her to, like, launch her dog at somebody. FF8 was weird, but kind of great. That was the first video game I played. Yeah, I remember when the trailer came out and we were both watching it and just being blown away by the quality of the animation. 
Yeah, have you watched that anytime in the last like 15 years? Because it does not hold up. It does its best. So, speaking of people who do their best, I guess, Logan does indeed make it to the Himalayas, um, and he's attacked by the Chinese Border Patrol because, of course, China had pretty much taken over Tibet by this point, and Logan has some some harsh words in his narration for that, but also some wonderful dialogue as his fight with them begins. Boys gave me the party line. Some portions of this province are closed to foreign guests. I like parties fine. But I never much cared for lines. Speak of the devil. One party coming up. Surprise party. The best kind. And the way you're reading it makes it sound like it's one block of text. Um, and it's it's spread out and paced really, really well with the art. Um, you'll if if you if you're new to the podcast, there is a visual companion to every episode. Uh, it's at explainthexmen.com, and that's where you can see examples of some of the stuff that we're talking about in the show that's more explicitly visually or visually oriented. It's so much fun. <clears throat> and I mean, just like I enjoy when X-Force realizes that it should totally sound like an action movie dialogue-wise, I always appreciate when Wolverine has that cowboy noir thing going on, and Wolverine Killing does that so well. It really does, yeah. So, Wolverine runs into a creepy old man in a robe a couple of times and both times everything logan's claws touch they weep blood um there's a tree there's a flower there's there's um a statue that comes to life and and grabs logan and during this time logan is barely able to keep able to keep the the raging beast inside tamped down he wants to know why all of this is happening he wants to understand what's going on and if the way we're describing this makes it sound a little incoherent, it's it's that, but not in a bad way. It's dreamlike. Everything that's happening is dreamlike. So it doesn't necessarily make sense. One scene doesn't necessarily follow from the one before it or lead into the one after it, but in a way that in general has an overarching tone that works. Yeah, it's a st- it's not a story that doesn't make sense. It's a story that runs on a different kind of narrative logic. Exactly. And the old man, as he sees all of this dream weirdness going on, kind of sums up part of the point of what this book is going to be about, as he tells Logan. The greatest struggles open minds and hearts. The greatest victories create new worlds. Dead men are slow to change their minds, Claude Man. Dead men do not change their worlds. So yeah, this is another the man versus the beast, violence versus, you know, nicer things than violence Wolverine story. But it's just so... Disagree. Oh yeah? Yeah, I I absolutely disagree. I think that's part of how it's framed, but the question that, that the guy keeps on coming back to is, what are your claws for? What are those claws for? He also always calls Wolverine Clawed Man, which I really like. And... That epithet, I think, is actually one of the best thematic indicators in this, because he's not calling him a beast, and he's not calling him a creature, and he's not calling him a weapon, and he's not calling him a man. He's calling him specifically Claude Man. He's calling him this very basic thing that is what he is, but that also indicates a sort of degree of synthesis and unity in those identities. That's true. It's it's purely descriptive. It's not. There's no judgment there, and so that kind of works, the idea that Logan can take his identity in whatever direction he chooses to. Well, and symbolically and practically, Logan very much associates the beast half of himself with the claws. So describing him as Clawed Man 
bridges a gap that we use that, that's usually pretty pretty stark in in again uh the the man versus beast which will win out in wolverine's mind stories this story is almost more of a meditation it it feels like you know if, if there are stories that are fables about that this is more of a zen cohen that's a really good way of describing it yeah because there is a meditative feel even to the most violent parts of this story man the more we talk about this the more i like it I guess that happens a lot with me, but still, like, legitimately this time. No, it's so good, and it's so interesting, and it's so layered, and I don't know if a lot of what I'm getting out of it is deliberate or if it's stuff that I'm reading into it, but either way, the more you pick it apart to see how it works, the more intricate bits you find and see in it, which is one of my favorite types of book. Totally. Well, back in the plot, Wolverine suddenly notices the giant exclamation point over the old man's head, and the old man does indeed have a task for Logan, not to just ponder things, but also to go rescue his lover who is out dying in the snow. And so Logan goes to go do just that, because Renoa, I mean Sarah, having learned that her fate is to have sex with a stranger and have a weird baby, has run away. Partially because that's creepy and partially because Tane has given her the psychic impulse to flee to freedom. She's intended to be bait for Logan. And Logan does indeed find her dying in the snow and carries her to a nearby town. And I hate that I have to say this, but I really appreciate that she's not objectified while she's freezing to death. You just summed up so many of the gender-related problems in comic books. I know, but the thing is, she's run out into the snow in not not skimpy, but seasonally wildly inappropriate clothing, and Wolverine finds her, and he's supposed to find her and find her pretty, and it's a sort of classic setup in which, in a lot of versions, the emphasis in the scene would be on how pretty and or sexy the character actively freezing to death was. Yeah, so well done, Kent Williams. I mean, like, with a whole lot of things, including this one. But also, fuck comics. Sometimes. Well, speaking of things that Kent Williams does well, on the way back to the Enclave, because Logan traces Sarah's footprints back to where she came from, Logan is attacked by one of Tane's minions, who... He kind of looks like one of King Hiss's snake men from He-Man, but like Kent Williams style, but he's seriously super goofy looking, this snake guy. Like, he's so out of place, except that this is a comic where nothing is out of place, so it works, but it's just bizarre. Was King Hiss actually like a real character in a thing? Because it really sounds like a a made-up name that someone would give to a cat on the internet. I think you just described almost every name in the Masters of the Universe franchise. There was a skunk... And the special gimmick of the action figure was that it smelled bad, and the name of that skunk figure that smelled bad was Stinkor. The new she is really good. <laughs> yes. Because what more do you say to Stinkor, you know? I... It's really good, though. <laughs> the opposite of peace isn't war. It's Stinkor. The opposite of dumb Masters of the Universe things is, in fact, the new she Well, except that they keep a lot of the silly names, but they make it work. It's so good. It's so good. I love it so much. Man, I just started watching The Good Place. Now there's another thing I have to watch. You're killing me, Jay. Well, this is really finite. Well, okay, there is that. But anyway, back in a comic book. Fine. So Logan wakes up in town. Um, He is is taken out by by King Hiss, which I still 
reject as an actual name for anything that's ever really existed. Um, and he, he, he comes to and finds Sarah, who is also recovering, and she is desperate to learn about the outside world. Until she fled that day, she had never been outside of her town. Yeah, like that's totally the unviolatable rule of this place. You can't leave. This is the only place you need to be. One thing that I really enjoy is that at one point, Logan makes some offhand comment about how they should grab a cab and play tourist. Like she should show him around. She's like, what's a cab? What's a tourist? Like she's really interested. And I can only imagine like, what's it got to be like to try to learn a bunch of new terminology from a noir cowboy protagonist? Or just from Wolverine in general. Right, like everything is some strange metaphor. Like he's never really direct about anything he says unless it's about just murder. Oh my god, she's going to learn that milk comes in bags. <laughs> it's going to blow her goddamn mind. No, because he's Canadian. Yeah, I know. She's also going to learn that there's a lot of terrible beer out there. I'm sure there's a lot of good Canadian beer. I just haven't seen it. Uh, listeners, if you know about good Canadian beer, tell me about it, and I'll try to drink no, it. There's plenty of good, t- good Canadian beer. There's also probably beer in this city. Uh, in the Enclave? Yeah. What, do you think they have, like, a, a thriving microbrewery scene? Probably. Well, good. Uh, now it seems much nicer than it did before I knew that. No, no, it's a really douchey microbrewery scene. Oh, man. Well, I do like IPAs, which apparently are the douchiest of all beers, according to many opinions these days. They absolutely are. Not just these days. They've always been the douchiest of all beers. But I love them. I like my beer to fight me a little. So... I thought that I hated IPAs, and then I moved to anywhere other than the Pacific Northwest and discovered that, no, I like IPAs. The Pacific Northwest just makes IPAs that are entirely a pissing contest of bitterness. I mean, you're not wrong. I just like bitterness. What were we talking about? IPAs. Before that, the Wolverine part. Um, we were learning, learning vocabulary from Wolverine. Right, so they do a tour of the Enclave, and there's very clear chemistry between the two of them, but Sarah wonders out loud, is this real, or is it just the fact that this dude Tane emotionally manipulates everybody around him for his own ends and wants the two of us to have a baby? And Wolverine just answers by saying, hey, I know what I'm feeling is only coming from you, and they have makeouts and emotional intimacy, and it's actually very nice, but it's... It's kind of a powerful scene. I mean, it's it's a little bit silly and strange, but this is such a big question for Logan all the time, you know? So it's nice to have it seen in the comic itself. Yeah, this scene is one of my favorites in this story because, so again, talking about the concept of, of synthesis is a major the- theme in here. This is a perpetual question for Logan. What of his personality, what of his memories, what of his wants, what of his instincts are his own, what are ones that are implanted, and what are, like his impulse to come to the Himalayas in this story, the result of someone else, someone more powerful, preying on the instincts and impulses he had already, and sort of manipulating them for their own purposes. And it's an uncertainty that Logan has lived with for a long time, but also that he has come a pretty long way toward making peace with. Ultimately, That's not a question he can answer most of the time, but he still has to keep doing things. Right. Like, he's given whatever hand he's given, and it often sucks, and that's just the way things are. So he's realized, well, what I do with this is, to a large degree, up to me. Maybe my memories are false. Maybe they're true. Who the hell knows? They're what I have. They're what make me who I am. I'm just going to fucking go forward. 
It's true. Wolverine does often suck. <laughs> that too, especially in Interfury. He sucks as he cuts. <laughs> nice. Thank you. So anyway, Tane, the guy with the emotional manipulating powers who was going to help Nerissa have her daughter fuck Logan, he hates this whole thing. He's like, all right, they were going to have sex, but now they're like having all these feelings and I wanted her feelings. God damn it. All right, Tane, the first thing you should know is that within any kind of open relationship, you can never predict how feelings are going to happen. You have to be open to possibility. People can't just promise to not fall in love. Okay, but I will counter and quote from the great philosophical text, Dinosaur Comics, Feelings are boring. Kissing is awesome. I mean, that's true, too. Maybe that's uh, Tane's whole deal. I don't know. Well, Tane decides he's going to resolve this dilemma by going to murder Logan and then erase Sarah's memories of Logan so that, so that she's pure again. Tane is fucking terrible, and I hate him. Yeah, he is definitely the villain here, and uh, he's going to go after Logan, but Logan is ready for him. Logan is hanging out in a corner smoking in full costume, and I love that detail. Yeah, we talk we we talk a lot and we laugh a lot about the moments where Logan is doing something else and just puts on his costume and it's like, well, now he's dressed as Wolverine. Here, it fits the dream logic, but it also fits the choices that he's making in this story and over the course of the story. Yeah, I mean, he is getting a feel for the way this place works and the way the scenario around him works, and so he knows that something like this is probably coming, and so he's just ready. Well, and there are specific things the costume represents for him as a character. It's effectively not exactly a civilizing influence, but it's it's Wolverine in a form where his feral side or his bestial side is, if not harnessed, then at least aimed. You know, it's kind of a weird parallel, but in a way, the way you're talking about that, Logan's costume almost reminds me of Cyclops's visor. You know, it takes something that can be just destructive or a weapon and allows him to be more deliberate about it. Well, and that also leads back to the question that the old man he's been seeing in Visions keeps asking him, the what are your claws for? Ah, such a good comic. So a fight's brewing, but I do want to go back a second because something I only noticed the second time I read the comic is that when Tane is stomping around wearing his trilby and crying MRA tears, he walks through a room full of goddamn like bombs and missiles and rockets and guns, and it's not commented upon. But you start to get the impression the Enclave at some point is maybe going to do something terrible to the world, and that makes the way this resolves have a little bit more context to it, which I really appreciate. Well, or it's xenophobia is not the positive is is not just about self-preservation it's it's a creepy place and it's set up really well as the utopia with something really wrong with it and one of the things i really like is how much isn't resolved in the story we never learn the origin of this place we never learn what happens to it we never learn what it's actually trying to do yeah that just makes it feel even more like a dream which i think is great but there's a fight um and you know i hate the whole dudes fighting over ladies trope but at least logan is being like a way better person about it than Tane. But what I also enjoy is that the narration, as Tane uses his psychic powers to just make Logan feel a whole bunch of pain, the narration kind of reminds me of early Metallica lyrics. So terrible? Well, kind of. But check this out. I'm going to do them like uh, James Hatfield instead of Logan, or maybe a cross between. 
Burning every tear I never shed. Ripping every fear I ever hid. Every scar my soul's got is tearing him open. My life, he's killing me with my life. See, this is one of those times when something works a lot better in visual than audio form. Because, again, this is a block of text that's broken up over several pages, and the slow realization of what Tane is actually doing to Logan. I know. I just kind of love early Metallica. But you're totally right. Like, it does work. It, this is something that in a lesser comic would just seem stupid, but it fits. The art and the writing just cohere perfectly. Logan finally lets himself go into a berserker rage, and he almost kills Tane, but he stops himself just in time. Like the old man said, the dead don't change their worlds. And your little world, Jack, looks to me like it needs some work. I really love that in this story, Logan calls everyone Jack, regardless gender. He also calls a bunch of things babe. At one point, he spends a couple pages uh, seemingly flirting with the giant storm behind him as he rides his motorcycle. See, at the beginning of that, I thought that what he was calling babe was like imaginary Humphrey Bogart. Could be. I mean, I can see them making out. Like my my first time through this, I thought, well, no, and then that it was there. It was an idiomatic term used between men casually in well, uh, yeah, Bogart years. I just want to see Logan and Bogart make out. That is an entirely valid desire, and I am sure that if you ask loud enough, the internet will provide. <laughs> but no, but I, I, I love how second person Logan's self narration is that he he talks to himself or his motorcycle or the storm or Humphrey Bogart just sort of casually as he's doing things his 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 inner monologue is is directed yeah it works really well and also it makes sense for a guy whose identity sometimes he's a little unsure of like his personality exists largely in his interactions with the environments people and concepts that surround him so after sparing tane's life and pointing out that if logan were the animal tane thought him to be Tane would be dead at that point. Logan heads out. He leaves a note for Sarah saying she could co- she sh- should come find him if she wants, but he's not going to assume that she's actually into him. Um, but if if she gets out, to let him know and he'll come pick her up at the airport. And then he heads home with a qualifier. Home, Logan, ain't where your heart is. It's where you go when there's no place else to go. Damn. Again, this is this is more cowboy poet than Mar. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's Wolverine Killing, a comic that I had never heard of before we were looking around for things to cover as we were building our episode order ages ago. And that I'm so glad we got to read and talk about. Yeah, yeah, that was phenomenal. Um and I, I would suggest just sitting with it for a second, and I do suggest looking it up and trying to track down the back issue if you can. I don't know that it's available digitally um, at this point, but there's no time for that because you, listeners, have questions. Howard asks via email, How does Warren Worthington III sleep? I assume he can't sleep in a bed, since he'd have to be a stomach sleeper to not sleep all over his wings, and I understand stomach sleeping can lead to back pains or worse. Does he sleep in a nest? Or has someone created some sort of bed-like option with room for the wings slash metal blades of death? Okay, so 
Howard, based on uh, the Metal Blades of Death part, I assume you're referring to Archangel, so especially since we're covering the early 90s, let's, let's go specifically with Archangel. Now, as we know, Archangel-era Warren Kenneth Worthington III does everything like a hawk. That is canon, my friend. What that means, among other things, is that when Warren Kenneth Worthington III sleeps, he tucks his head under his fluffed-up back feathers— now, that's a little weird for Warren because he doesn't actually have feathers. He has, like, metal and flechettes and stuff. So I can only assume he turns his head at an unnatural angle and puts it under one of those weird boomerang things that his wings retract into sometimes. As for where he sleeps, Warren Worthington III, like all hawks, grips a hardwood tree branch near the trunk and sleeps there. Now, this is for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that in inclement weather, if he's near the trunk, he's going to get hit with less of that, and hardwood means the tree is going to, you know, move around less. But also, when hawks like Warren Kenneth Worthington III sleep, their feet, their toes, automatically clamp tightly on to whatever they're around. Now, my assumption is that those little pink squares on Archangel's toes, that's what they're for. Like, they have, they have that mechanism built into them. So, basically, yes, uh, Warren tucks his head backward under his metal wing things, locks his feet around branches, and goes to sleep. He doesn't have a nest because nests are only used by incubating mothers in hot kind. Um, I appreciate the amount of research you've put into this. I looked at some comics, and um, what, what I learned is that how Warren sleeps has absolutely no goddamn relationship to wing anatomy. He sleeps in the range of positions you'd expect for a person without wings. I don't know how that works. I assume that it's a rich people thing. Rich people. They're not like us. In some cases, they're really not like us. Boom Boom Von Doom asks via email, Can adamantium cut through vibranium? Would Wolverine be able to cut Captain America's shield in pieces? So the short answers to your two questions are respectively, it depends and no. So, in their purest states, adamantium is stronger than vibranium. However, they are almost never found in that state. Um, I know adamantium can't be synthesized in its purest form, for instance, and so the question of which is stronger becomes incredibly relative and incredibly dependent on metal quality, alloys, and a bunch of other stuff that I don't have the scientific or metallurgical background to really describe, and which is also mostly made up arbitrarily as plots call for it. So... That brings us to the question, can Wolverine's claws break or cut through Cap's shield? Well, as a rule, only plot requirement can break Cap's shield. Um, Cap's shield only breaks when there's a real intense symbolic need for it to. has nothing to do with composition. has nothing to do with, with metal strength. However, there are narrative justi justifications for this. Cap's shield is really strong. It started out as an adamantium-vibranium alloy, um, which was canonically stronger than either individually. And these days, it includes not only that, but Asgardian Uru metal. That's the stuff Thor's hammer is made out of. Um, and it has mystical as well as physical properties that are part of its construction and part of, part of the, the, the metalworking process that went into it that make it even stronger. Wolverine, on the other hand, uh, the adamantium in Wolverine's bones started out as the purest form of adamantium, but because of his healing factor, it's perpetually degrading. So at this point, it's something, it's, 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 it's a less pure form of adamantium, and it's definitely not stronger than the shield. So yeah, shield versus claws, shield is probably going to win. 
well-researched. I'm impressed. There is a remarkable amount of incredibly detailed information about this on the internet. I, I spent about two hours going through primary and secondary sources for this. I considered trying to dig up a metallurgist um, to get them to explain a couple of the principles to me, but then I realized that there's I, I have no reason to believe that these are based in anything real. So, um, so I, I just went with the comics versions. But but yeah, that's 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 what I've got for you, Boom Boom Von Doom. And I suspect that at some point, if the story calls for it, uh, this will change yet again. But for now, Shield beats Claws. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, and it's assorted metallurgical and hawk research are fully listener-supported. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear today from the angry Claremontian narrator. You spend your life subsumed in one of humankind's oldest struggles, Andrew Henderson. Your intellect always at war with the primal Alison MacDonald who lurks ever-present in your soul. And try as you might, you know it's just a matter of time until your guard slips just a little too far. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the X-Men take on the upstarts. And X-Force reconnects with some old frenemies. (laughs) 